Hello, this is David. Hey, this is Shiloh. And this is History by the Century. How's it going, Dave? Good, man. So we, you know, we had our little, we, we tried to record the 4th Century episode. Things got out of hand. We took a little break. And now we're back like a month later to record part two of the 4th Century. Yeah, you know. So what's, well, been go- what's been going on, Shiloh? Well, first of all, what's been going on, Dave, uh, is it, something was happening that wasn't in the 4th Century. Something was happening this last month. And we'd like to, you know, congratulate you. You and uh, your wife had a wonderful little baby. And yeah, so, we had a little king fetus of our own. Yeah, and uh, you know that's why it took a little while to get back together and put out some episodes. But uh, we're really happy for you, and you know, looking forward to some more episodes talking about history, Dave. What is happening in the fourth century, Dave? Well, we talked about Constantine already. We did. We talked about Sharpur. Yeah, so we we've talked about that. What's coming up now is the Huns. Some other stuff. That's the Huns. Right. So. Stirrups. Adrianople in the year. Of 378. It's a big year, Dave. And uh, my little footnote to a footnote, Bizarro Constantine. And now, Shiloh, you know, some people, uh, like myself, make the mistake of only wanting to talk about Rome. Because when you're talking about this time period, like, all the good stuff is going on in Rome. And then you've got other people that spend a lot of time talking about the other big power center, China. Uh, and, you know, we've mentioned China before. We haven't gone too in-depth. We've talked a little bit about some of the dynasties, a lot of their inventions, because they always invent stuff first. And we're going to get a little into a big invention a little bit later in the episode. But I want to talk about what's going on in between China and Rome. Wait a So minute. if you go... There was, there's a place between China and Rome? There is. And so oh, if wow. you go a little bit east of China and a little bit west of Rome, you've got this area known as the steppe. Wait a minute. Did you say if you go west of Rome? Did I say west? I meant east of Rome, <laughs> west of China. Uh, because the, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, I guess nobody's listening. This is history by the century, not geography See, by the century. This is why nobody listens to our geography podcast, Shiloh. It's, it's, it's even more inaccurate than this one. Oh, wow. Wow. Impressive. <laughs> so, so, anyways, you have this big area called the step. The step. Now, what do you like, think of when you think of the step? I don't like, you know, when I'm going up the stairs. Well, see, that's S T E P, but you got to add the P P E on the end. And I'm not talking oh. about personal protective <laughs> equipment. I'm talking about step. S T E P P E. So, if you want to know about the step, you know, if you're American, you're from the United States. Think of like the. Uh, yeah, that was pretty bad, wasn't it? That yeah, was great. Nobody, that was great. Yeah, you know, I want to be known for acronym jokes one day. Uh, But if you think of, like, the American Great Plains, you know, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Dances with Wolves, like, imagine that, okay? But then you stretch it until it's the size of twice the Atlantic Ocean, and that's the step. Wow. And the people— That sounds massive. Yeah, and so I want to take a a little bit of time to introduce the step people, the people that lived on the step— and they were basically uh, nomadic horse archers, kind of similar to the people that lived on the Great Plains, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago for hundreds of years. You know, when you think about tribes like the Sioux, the Pawnee, uh, things like that. Again, think the movie Dances with Wolves. But to truly understand the steppe, 
Um, I want to ask you a question. It might sound like it's left field, but I promise it's related. So on a scale of 1 to 10, Shiloh, how bad was World War One? Oh, well, at the time, it was uh, pretty much the worst thing the world had gone through. So uh, 10 being the worst, I'd, I'd say it was the worst. It was a 10. Yeah, you know what? I, I would go a 10 as well. So, like, let's say that you're living uh, in that time period and you are an allied propaganda guy. You want to make posters that are propaganda to show how bad the Germans are. You want people to uh, join the army. You want them to buy war bonds. So what do you focus on? Like, um, you know, do you talk about the fact that the Germans invented mustard gas, even though both sides use it? Do you talk about the millions of casualties? Like, you had battles where hundreds of thousands of people died in not just one battle, but like in one day of one battle. Like to give you some perspective, I think Gettysburg was less than 10,000 people, but you have battles that people have never heard of where you had hundreds of thousands of people die in just one day. You know, do you talk about tanks? Do you talk about barbed wire, no man's land? They had grenades. They had blimps. They had zeppelins with bombs. They had machine guns on airplanes. Like it was horrible. You could have made posters about all of these things, but Instead, they took a slightly different tactic. They compared them to 4th century people of the steppe. If you look at posters of Allied uh, propaganda from World War I, they would show pictures of German soldiers, and it would say, Stop the Hun. Like, you think the Germans are bad? No, they're worse. They're as bad as 4th century nomadic horse archers. So you're probably wondering why in the world would people think that they're so bad and you know who were they, right? Yeah. So let's start with, you know, like where did they come from? And Shiloh, I know you don't like it, but it's a bit of a controversy. Oh so, no, what are you talking about, Dave? Okay, so like there's, you know, in the historical community, there's a bit of a debate on where the Huns come from. Uh, some people think that they came from the Tartars, Tartars. Uh, some people think that they were Turkish. Uh, some say Caucasian, some may say Mongolian. Some say even further west that they were actually descendants of the Xiongnu. Um, the Xiongnu, oh, man, Dave. Yeah, and, you know, of course, the Xiongnu were very similar to the Huns, except they were on the other side of the steppe attacking the Chinese. And we're going to talk about them a little bit later. Where, where do you fall in this camp? Like, where do you think the Huns came from, Shiloh? I think that they took the name Xiongnu as a, more of a, what it meant to carry that name, much like later on you see different armies wanting to claim they were Roman in Europe. You know, you might think, like the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, which were, yeah. you know, kind of mostly German. Right, exactly. So I feel that uh, for the Huns to take that name, Xiongnu, for people to identify, and if you're really, really into history, you're going to hear this and you're going to say, okay, most people just go, okay, you know, the Huns, they came, they attacked Rome. If you're trying to identify them and you want to build that link to the Xiongnu, I don't think they're directly related to them. I think it was more of a, a mixed group of people that took that name for what it represented, the Xiongnu, or the Xiongnu representing this powerful uh, powerful entity from long ago. 
Oh, yeah. That's that's good. And you know, there's there's an interesting other theory I like. It's called which is kind of similar to that. Like it it's a bit of a hodgepodge. So they were nomadic people. They were traveling all over the place quickly on horses. So some people think they were kind of a combination of a lot of different peoples. Like in other words, maybe they raided to the north or to the west and they would incorporate those people into their tribes. And there's evidence for this much later with the Mongols. Uh, for example, nobody really knows what Genghis Khan looks like. He was probably the most famous step person next to, you know, our guy from the fifth century, Attila the... Um, that, that wasn't a, uh, like a, a nun? Attila the nun? <laughs> well, you know, Attila the Hun. But... You know, but supposedly Genghis Khan had Asiatic features, red hair like a Scotsman, and green eyes. So it's possible the Huns were the same way. They were a bit of a mixture of everybody that was around them. Now, just to talk a little bit about them, they were amazing horsemen. And the reason was, if they were old enough to walk, they were old enough to ride a horse. So if you think about your kid, you know, your, your, um, your different milestones, like they crawl and then they learn how to walk. When they hit that age, when they could walk, they would stick them on a horse. So it was second nature to them. They were amazing. And they were also amazing archers. They had these bows, these reflex bows. They were, they, uh, were um, composite bows. They were made of different materials, and they looked kind of like the shape of maybe a W or the letter B but they were smaller at the bottom than on the top. And I'm going to post a picture of this on uh, my Instagram account, um, at History by the Century, so you can see a picture of it. But they were super duper powerful. And because they were smaller on the bottom, they wouldn't hit the back of the horse. So you could swing it around, you wouldn't hit the horse's back, you, you could even do it behind you. But And I'm going to get to that in just a minute, but they could fire them um, and pierce through armor at 80 yards. Mm. Wow. And at they could fire about three times that distance, but not go through armor. So about two and a half football fields. Like, let's say you're standing at the, uh, the, the field goal of one football field, and then you add another football field to that, and then half of one after that. And, of course, we're talking about American football here. Um, that's about how far they could shoot. Now, uh, later with the Mongols, it was said that they could shoot a bird out of the air mid-gallop. Wow. Of course, this was like 800 years after the fact, but yeah. the Huns were very similar uh, to the Mongols. Now, I just want to talk about another little piece of controversy revolving the Mongols. And I know you don't like controversy, Shiloh, but no. some people think <laughs> because they could... Don't just no, no, it's no, I, no. We're going there. No, let's, don't because, talk about it, Dave. Don't do it. Because they they could fire backwards. They could turn around and fire completely backwards, just like the Parthians. Some people think that the Huns and even the Parthians had no. St I'm going to say no. it. Stirrups. No. Yep. They, they think that maybe they had. Well, now, you, I mean, you have a pretty strong opinion on this. Where do you fall on this? And why don't you give us a brief history of stirrups, and then we'll get back to the uh, Huns and the crazy stuff they ate. Wow. Well, uh, Dave, I, before we can continue this conversation, let me just ask you: um, Do you think they had that the the uh, Huns had stirrups on their horses? First of I, all, 
First of all, what is a stirrup, Dave? Because some people might hear this and they might think, uh, get a little confused by the term stirrup because that can mean one thing, but it also could mean another thing. What do you, what do you, how do you define that, Dave? Well, you know, it's that little loop. It could be leather, it could be metal that's attached to the bottom of a, sand, a saddle okay. on a horse. You know, okay. you stick your foot up and you, you climb on the horse. Now, the Huns probably didn't have stirrups and neither did the parthians okay um the reason for that is because as we talked about in the bonus episode with mike smith on the roman legions the romans stole everything Uh, like you know every bit of armor they had every bit of culture they had they stole from other people like the romans were just copycatted greek culture you know their armor they stole from other people their sword they stole from other people so the romans would have stolen the stirrup if they fought somebody with stirrups once and so since they didn't, and there's no record of it, the Huns didn't have it, the Parthians didn't have it. The only reason they think they had it is because the Parthians and the Huns did this awesome thing where they would turn completely backwards in their saddle just about and fire backwards. And they called it the Parthian shot, which is where we get the parting shot today. So like if you're having an argument with somebody and you think it's over and as they're walking away, they kind of turn around and mumble something under their breath. That's a parting shot. Yeah, well, like, that's where, like with the controversy about someone that is trying to bring up stirrups, that the Huns <laughs> had stirrups, and I'm saying, right, Dave, you heard me. Yeah, but, but Shiloh, right, tell, tell us, where, where did stirrups come from? Well, and was it also the 4th century? Yeah, bringing bring to the point that stirrups are um, something that help you maintain your balance on a horse. That's what we're talking about here. And, you know, you might hear this and you might think, well, what's the big deal? But just even... From a simple source like something like the Scientific American Journal, even they bring up an article about the importance of stirrups in that, just thinking from the basic thing, humans had been riding horses bareback. Or they might have had some seats on there that gave them a little bit of, a little more stability, but they didn't have stirrups. They didn't have something for their feet to be in. Yeah, like, I think the Parthians and the Huns had like a high saddle. It wasn't like what we have today. Exactly, right. So... So they did have something to help them maintain stability, but the stirrup gave that extra balance for your feet to be able to have something to you know balance you as a rider. So that's a huge uh, progression in technology. And it's funny you think about technology, you don't really think about horse stirrups as a, an advance in technology, but it really was. And so because of that advance in technology, people say things, and, and we're not going to say that I don't know if I necessarily agree with this, but because of that technology, huge migrations of people were pushed from one place to the other because of warfare and the development of feudal feudal Europe may have had a huge may have been hugely impacted by the stirrup. What do you think? And Dave? yeah, absolutely. Some people say it was as important an invention as the wheel, as fire. And the reason is, uh, just like Diocletian led to feudal Europe, which we talked back about a couple years ago, if it wasn't for the stirrup, you couldn't have had feudal Europe. And that's because without the stirrup, you can't have knights in shining armor, which is an integral part of feudal society, because you can't get on a horse if you're wearing armor, if there isn't a stirrup. And, I mean, getting on a horse without stirrups when they went into battle was kind of a sketchy thing before this. Like, there was guys that would try to get on a horse, fall off, and land on their sword and die. 
Right. So yeah. that's can you think why. Of any, can you think of any famous that died? Oh, man, was there somebody famous that died trying to get on their horse? Uh, it's so funny because I know you know this, Dave. <laughs> I, I know this? <laughs> <laughs> I know we've talked about uh, one of our favorite characters, Cambyses II of the Persian Empire, before uh, on his way back to handle matters and... Uh, in Persia, I think uh, basically he had someone usurping the throne, and he tried to get back, and he had a little get on the horse mishap, I believe, and got hurt and died from an infection. I believe is is somewhat. But going back to one thing with 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 the what you said with knights in shining armor creating feudal Europe, we all that all needed the stirrup to make that happen. But really, if you get down to the basic thing, you say so knights in shining armor couldn't have existed without the stirrup. The stirrup. Knights in shining armor represented the nobility, the people that owned the land, the people that you weren't, when you rode a horse and you had um, that kind of power, that signified what you were. So stirrups were kind of one of those things that was a symbol, you know, it, it came to symbolize your status because you could be a knight, you could be someone that was nobility, uh, you could lead men. You could lead an army, you know. So, well, oh, sorry. Go ahead. So, Shiloh, are you telling me that everybody before the fourth century? Wait, did we talk about where stirrups came from? Which which country? Did you I, mention that it you was know? I believe you China. Just, you just interrupted me, but to tell. Oh, I was. I was hey, getting Shiloh, there. Can you? Why don't you talk about the thing that I was going to interrupt you to talk about? <laughs> yeah. So what's interesting is hey, that. So we, Shiloh, yeah. where, where do they come from? <laughs> you man, man, talk about just. Just, you know, letting the cat out of the bag. <laughs> Talking about stirrups, you got Paul Revere just riding over here. And I wanted to, I wanted to say China, Dave. Yeah. Hey, fun fact. Do you know where the term cat, letting the cat out of the bag came from? You know, I don't. Well, on Navy ships, they kept the cat of nine tails, which they would whip people with um, on the masthead. And if somebody... Uh, got in trouble and they were going to whip them they let the cat out of the bag that's oh, what it wow. meant when they took the cat yeah so that's where it came from i like that nice thanks dave okay yeah. so so stirrups huge military technology and advancement that has moved people all over the first evidence we have of this is in china yes and we're we're talking about the year 322 that's around the time that they believe the stirrups are making their appearance, and it's an appearance in a Chinese tomb, and it's not, it's it's pretty vague here. It isn't even until later that they start to really find some actual examples of stirrups. So with, with you know, buried with full, uh, full equipment and, and everything for a horse. So it, it's, we're not just saying 322 is the year that the stirrup was invented. Because there's even other cultures, right, Dave, that had some examples of like something that resembled a stirrup. Oh yeah, my favorite stirrup of all time. You know what they had in India? You you had a favorite stirrup, Dave? Yeah, my favorite countries. Well, my favorite stirrups. My favorite stirrup came from India. Let's okay. Let's back up. It was uh, the toaster up. Wait a minute. Are you talking about the um, the breakfast pastry? No, 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 no. Not not a toaster up. They they had toaster ups. So they had a stirrup that was <laughs> not toaster ups. 
They had toe stirrups, Shiloh. It was a stirrup just for your toe. So if you're not wearing shoes, you would hop on the horse and they would have this tiny little stirrup. They would stick their big toe in there and that's what they would use. And that is hilarious and awesome. And of course, it didn't take off in cold climates because people wore shoes. Oh, wow. But you'd think, you'd think if they could invent toe stirrups before everybody else, they could have also invented shoes. Or socks. Go back and listen to episode. Uh, go back and listen to the second century, uh, right, Dave? They 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 had shoes. They just were choosing not to wear them. You know? Right. Okay. But I'm so sorry. so. Uh, so stirrups. We're talking about now that they've been invented. But when we say three twenty two, we're still talking about you know China is, you know they're they're putting these in their their tombs. We're gonna talk about this later on too. Tombs are very important. You know, you put your best stuff in a tomb. Tombs actually sometimes come to define a period of time. There's certain periods of times in the Baltic and other parts of uh, Russia that, based on the tomb, the name of the tomb, that defines this period of time we're talking about. So, you know, tombs are very important to get archaeological evidence from. But thinking with all this in mind about the stirrups, we see, you know, the importance of, of China again, their innovation. And what's happening in China at the same time is they literally are going through a collapse. It's called the, the 16, the time of the 16 kingdoms or the five barbarians. So basically five invading um, ethnicities or five different groups are invading China and they're setting up different um, empires or different organizations. And one of those was the Shang Nu. So kind of making full circle, the same time that Constantine is ruling, China is being invaded by barbarian armies, one of which is called the Shan Nu, which is also what some people like to try and say that where the Huns came from. So it's kind of interesting how things are related. Is the Shan Nu that are invading China the same as the ones over starting to come on the horizon of, uh, of Rome, Dave? Probably not. Okay. But, you know, we could call them like their distant cousins. You we know? could call them some hey, distant cousins. So, so does so, that take us back? Well, I had one question, Shiloh, and yeah. this, this. So, when you think of like everybody before the the fourth century, mm-hmm. you know, you think like uh, Julius Caesar riding into battle. You yeah. Think uh, like Alexander the Great riding into battle. Mm-hmm. None of those guys had stirrups. That's right. And you know, Dave, you bring up a good point. Thanks for thanks for helping me uh, bring this out is that you now, with this knowledge, how best to use this knowledge for our listeners? We'd like it. What's the best way to use it? Like to uh, teach others about history? Is that it? Or is it to like like, instill in youth? How do you use this, Shiloh? We'd like you to watch movies now and point out how wrong they are. So (laughs) please take this knowledge. Go ahead and watch movies like Ben-Hur or The Ten Commandments, whichever one that you like. Pick a Charlton Heston movie, you know. Pretty much any Charlton Heston movie. And then tell your (laughs) friends as you're watching it, say, hey, that's not historically accurate. They didn't have stirrups. That was before the 4th century CE. I think if you could take one thing away from this podcast is we want to help you become that guy. That guy, yeah. You know, that guy that ruins the movie. That guy. To your wife, that guy to your wife. Who says they don't yeah. care about yeah. if the movie was historically accurate? They, you know, they're talking about uh, you know 
Yeah, so anyways, Dave, we talked about the Xiongnu in China. Back to Hunnic cuisine. Is that where we're going back to? So, Well, how does that relate? I like we I just, said, well, we we're, just we're, talking, like we're talking chronologically here. 322, we, we said as a, as a start to when we see stirrups. Going back to Rome, yes. you got Constantine ruling. He dies. We already talked about that. Um, what we see now is not something that's seen in Rome directly, but there's a storm out on the horizon. And if by storm, you mean really bad beef jerky. And if by horizon, you mean the border of the Roman world, <laughs> then yes, we have beef jerky so, on, the, Shiloh, on the horizon. We, you know, we just took like a little 20 minute um, footnote to talk about stirrups and why the Huns didn't have them. But I just... Before we get into that other stuff, I just want to take a second to talk about jerky and Hunnic cuisine. Now, Shiloh, you you know your jerky. So I got a question for you. What is the best and what is the worst beef jerky you have ever had? First of all, I want to say that it's really good to think about um, food and recipes and modern or and, and cuisine in the fourth century we failed to mention in the first century there was a cookbook that uh, came out in Rome the, very interesting there, there was a cookbook yeah but it, regardless so you're telling me that there was a classic fourth century jer- jerky recipe yes and I'm about to share it with you after I find out about the current best slash worst beef jerky right so what you're going to look for when you go to a store is you're looking for some nice, solid strips of meat. You don't want that grinded and processed and formed into a little square rectangle. I mean, usually it's it's pretty healthy meat, but I like a nice strip of whole muscle. So look for that big old chunk of hearty meat, solid meat that came from one muscle, especially if it's been salted and dried, you know? Um but how did how did they do it in uh, old Hunnic times? Wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me like the uh, extruded tube is not natural, like the Slim Jim or the... Uh... I didn't want to use names, but yeah, you know what? The extruded tube, I believe. I think that could be a theme. I'd like you to get a t-shirt that says the extruded tube, Dave. No, the extruded tube is not the best jerk. That's not even, that shouldn't even be called jerky. But, but people will look at us one day in the future and say, do you know what they did? They took weird chemicals and meats and put it together in a tube, and people loved it, especially when they were working on a construction site. What did we do in Hunnic <laughs> times, Dave? Okay, so what they would do is, and this is pretty gross, they would get strips of raw meat. They would lay it on the bare back of their horse. Then they would put the saddle on top of that meat, ride their horse hard all day long. And as it's riding, you know, the horse is sweating and that salty sweat is flavoring the meat. And I was wondering too, like, would that salt preserve the meat at all, or just no, not? Nothing. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, flavor it. Yeah. Okay, you you know your charcuterie. Yeah. Um, but the the uh, and then at the end of the day, they would take the saddle off and they would eat the meat raw. And according to sources, they ate, ate everything raw. They ate beets, potatoes, any vegetables. It was all raw. So I feel like that is the worst jerky. Uh, in history. And I just, I wanted to throw out a disclaimer about everything we know about the Huns. It might all be not true. And, and that's because there are no records that the Huns made that came down to our day. 
Um, everything we know about the Huns, we know from the people they were fighting. So, which is kind of a common thing. Like a lot of what we know about the Persians, we learn from the Greeks who were fighting them. That's why the Persians are kind of the bad guys in a lot of ancient stories. But it's kind of like if everything you knew about the history of the United States was written by the Vietnamese during the Vietnam War. Like, even if everything they said was 100% true, it's not a complete snapshot. You don't know what's happening 50 years later. You don't know what's happening 100 years before in the United States. You don't know what's happening in Kansas or New York or Texas. It's just what's happening on the battlefield for a few specific years. So, in other words, everything we learn about the Huns, we kind of have to take with a grain of salt. Um, of course, unless that grain of salt is from horse sweat, then we don't want to take that at all. But, uh, oh, dude. Yeah. You had to go there, huh? You know, you asked why I wanted to be on Zoom, because I, I didn't get to see you, uh, I wouldn't get to see you shake your head when I tell really bad jokes if we, wow. we didn't have the video call. Wow. But a few other things that we know about the Huns, again, from their enemies, is they were terrified of them. Uh, Edward Gibbon, uh, who wrote the classic um, Decline and Fall of the, the Roman Empire, he said that uh, their enemies thought that the Huns were descended from a witch and a demon, which, of course, is not true. But, I mean, for them to say that, you know they were terrified of them. Uh, they also said that at birth, they would scar a baby's face before it even fed, because they thought it inoculated them to pain. They also supposedly did headbanding, which is where, uh, I don't know if you know this, Shiloh, but a baby's a skull it isn't hard like yours or mine. They come out soft and the plates aren't formed. So some cultures would actually put bands around babies' heads. So they could have had like tall, narrow heads. They could have had cone-shaped heads. Like, like they could have looked like Dan Aykroyd. But, you know, well, I mean, not the real Dan Aykroyd, but, you know, in the movie Coneheads. Wow. Kind of similar to that. Wow. But they could have really looked very, very different. Um... And so just there's, – there's a couple takeaways from this. One is they would have been terrifying. Like th imagine yourself just for a moment transport yourself back to 4th century Europe. And you are you know, standing there in the field and all of a sudden you see a horde of horsemen on the horizon. And they're horse archers. But, you know – like, when we think of horse archers now, we think, like, oh, you know, we come from a, a period of, like, gunpowder, you know. But for them, they had the superior weapons technology. I mean, if you think of, like, the movie, like, Independence Day or, like, War of the Worlds, like, it was more of, like, an alien invasion. You know, they, you know if you're, like, a guy with a two-foot sword and somebody can shoot at you from 250 yards away... Like, you, you can't do anything. It would have been terrifying. You know, and as they're riding towards you, they're firing arrows, they're going past you for like a couple hundred yards. Then they get to 80 yards, and it starts punching through armor. And then as they get closer, you can see scars on their faces. They have cone-shaped heads, maybe Asiatic or even Mongolian features. And then when they get close enough, they would even use lassos. Then, like, you, they're finally close enough, you could chuck a spear at them or use your weak bow and arrow, and then they start riding away. But as they're riding away, they're shooting arrows back at you. I mean, it would have been terrifying. So, Shiloh, there's, there's two takeaways I want to take from this. 
Takeaway number one, why did the Americans call the Germans the Huns? Well, first off, the Germans came up with the idea. Uh, in the Boxer Rebellion, about 15 years before World War I, uh, they had foreign troops that were Germans as well as others in China. A German minister told the troops to be as vicious as the Huns. So it was technically the Germans' idea. But the takeaway is that maybe, just maybe, the Allies wanted people to be as afraid and uh, angry at the Germans as the 4th century Germans would have been of the Huns. Takeaway number two, Shiloh. And this is what I want everybody, if you're listening to this or Shiloh to take away from this. Uh, the next time you're talking to your wife, or maybe if you are not married, maybe if you're overhearing a conversation between a married couple, and one of them says to the other one, Hey, hun, maybe, just maybe, they're using the word hun with a U, and maybe it's not a compliment. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, thanks for that. That uh, talking about of the thank you know, and I'm I'm at a loss for words. Thanks that, for that giving like, us a rundown on the Huns, Dave. That was like a key and pill skit. It was a lot of build up for one kind of bad joke. So, so you talked about the Huns, but you mentioned an interesting point, Dave. You brought out that the Huns firing these arrows from such a huge distance at people with a two-foot sword, right? Or, or let's just say actual, maybe, you know, foot-and-a-half sword. Not, not too big. These Huns wouldn't have been firing at Romans at this time. These right. Huns were firing at just some good old German farmers out in the field doing their thing. Yeah, the, the Europeans. Yeah, well, yeah, at the time, they probably didn't call themselves Europeans. But, yeah, you know, these, these guys are out there doing their thing. They're farming, and they just basically got these these bullies coming into town, pushing. And so what do these German people do? These German, uh, this German ethnicity, this culture, this Germanic culture, what do they do? Well, they start to say, let's not stick around here. Let's go over to Rome because Rome will protect us. Or maybe we can, Rome will let us in. Maybe we can go over to Rome and just do some farming in their area. Well, now, Shiloh, like five minutes ago, weren't they raiding the Romans? Five minutes ago, yeah. In, on our podcast, they were. Yes, they were five minutes ago raiding the Romans. But, you know, times have changed. Quite a few years have gone by. You know, people kind of learn to live and get along together. Romans got their territory. These different Germanic tribes have their little territory a little outside. But now the Germanic tribes are sandwiched between these Huns and Rome. Rome doesn't see Would the you... Huns coming yet, but... Would you say they were stuck between a rock and a hun place? I would. That's exactly how I'd say it, hun. Uh, so, yeah. So, so in other words, like, the goths at this point were kind of like that bully in school who always asks for the guy's lunch money and beats him up. But then one day he's like, hey, instead of beating you up and stealing your lunch money, can I just, like, hang out with you because the next bully is a lot worse than me? Yeah, exactly. And and so if you maybe if you're just jumping in and listening to this episode or or you don't have the background story, the Goths have done a, a fair amount of raiding and, and um, uh, pestering the Roman Empire. So the Romans and the Goths, as a Germanic tribe, the Goths and the Romans don't get along so great. But now all of a sudden, you know, the Goths have moved 
closer and closer to the, the Roman border because these Huns are more are just invading more and more of the Gothic lands. But it's not just them, you know. You're looking at the westward expansion of the Huns has caused ones like the the Vandals and even other different tribes to come more and more closer to the Roman border. In fact, we're now we're going to move to the year 370. We've, we've skipped over quite a few years, but we're coming to the year 370. There's actually a huge migration of Germanic people. And there's actually a word that they use to describe this. It's called the Volkerwanderung. The Volker wow, how many the, syllables is that? Well, you got to love German. They can put together multiple things to make up a whole new thing. So Volkerwanderung, I don't know if I'm saying that entirely correctly, but there's a great German migration into the Roman Empire. And just like today, we have some modern examples of um, what's going on in Syria. A lot of Syrian refugees coming into the country of Turkey. This is all happening modern day. That causes a lot of tension. That causes a lot of um, difficulties between countries. And then even for people just trying to be able to survive. In this situation, with all the, with the Huns pushing the, these different Germanic peoples into the Roman Empire... These Germanic peoples are looking for, for asylum. They're looking for help from the Roman Empire. What does Rome do in this situation? Instead of being really, really nice and saying, sure, come on over, what do they do, Dave? Uh, you know, they, they kind of bungle it, and then they... Is bungle a word? If, uh, if it's a... Yeah, if it's a word, they, they, they bungle it. And I was just going to mention, too, like to give an idea of the number of people, um, uh, you know, ancient numbers are often exaggerated, but Edward Gibbon, you know, pretty reliable source. Um, he thinks that it was about 200,000 warriors. Um, and with their families, he thinks it may have been a total of about a 1 million people. So 1 million refugees that were armed seeking asylum, or at least the warriors were armed. Right. And so exactly. And also to clarify too, and we're talking about these people that are coming in, we're saying Germanic tribes, Germanic people. It's, it's really interesting right now, just like we talked about in the first century, um, the Germanic people, it's a culture. It's something, there's a certain common culture that a, a vast group of tribes share. So when we say Germanic tribes, we're talking about ones like Angles, Saxons, Jutes, Danes, Alemanni, the Burgundians, the Franks, the Franks and the Goths. The Franks had a huge impact on defining the beginning of modern-day Europe, you know, the Franks leading to the establishment of, you know... Uh, Hot dogs? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> France and Germany. Thanks, Dave. What a way to derail me. Um, you know, the... <laughs> Even the Gothic people go on to have an influence in the Iberian Peninsula in Spain. There's a huge Gothic influence over there, at least for a while. So the Germanic yeah, and, peoples, yeah, yeah, and just and just for everybody at home, it's like always, you know, people always talk about the Ostrogoths and Visigoths and the Alamo. Well, I guess not everybody talks about them, but yeah, no. At night, me and uh, at night, when I, before I go to bed, me and my wife have a deep conversation about the Goth, the Ostrogoths, and the Visigoths. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then she calls you Hun. Um, wow. But, yeah, sorry. Oh, but so the uh, Ostrogoths and Visigoths, it just means Eastern and Western Goths. Uh, the Alamanni tribes, that just meant the all men. Like, it was kind of a, a conglomeration of a bunch of the Gothic tribes. And all of those names, like a lot of names in history, were given to them by 
other people. All right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so good thing to keep in mind. But now that we're talking about a mass migration of people coming into the Roman border, they're being pushed by the, the Huns. And basically that brings us to a major confrontation between Rome and these different peoples. And we're going to say that this, this happened in the year 378. We're going to it's kind of nice to pick a year, pick a moment, pick a specific time, and we're even going to go now to a battle, Adrianople. So if you're looking in the, um, if you're thinking about the 4th century major events, one of the major events of the 4th century is the Battle of Adrianople. So what happened, Dave? Well, it was something that was, you had a migration that was severely mismanaged. So you had a huge number of people and the Romans, instead of uh, disarming and dispersing them, like they, they could have handled it well. Like, for example, they could have kind of spread them out throughout the empire. They could have given them the hookup, but instead they kept them together as a group. Um, they were supposed to disarm them, but they didn't. And then they started abusing them. Uh, they took hostages from the uh, the wealthier people, which is a common practice back then. You know, you take people and they basically come and live with you and you know, you don't kill them if everything goes well. Uh, but then they also started taking slaves. So they ran out of food. And so you have a big group of hungry people with weapons and uh, they would sell them food in exchange for their children as slaves. So it was kind of just, they were just one, you know, spark away from it igniting into a huge war. Right. And so... A lot of people will pinpoint this battle, Adrianople. Uh, we won't go into every small detail, but the point is, is Rome was defeated by a very massive group of people that were angry and upset by the way they got treated. And so, this battle of Adrianople is is a big loss for the Rome for Rome. And what was the name of the leader of the Goths? And that's, battle I was just about to bring that up, Dave, is that uh, the name of the leader, the man who took the lead among these, these poor people that were in a very bad situation, I love the name so much, I think I want to give it to my second child. Not the first child, second child. Wait, but in the last episode, you said that you were going to name all of your children, you know, Shiloh, Shilonista. Oh, Sh right. After uh, following in Constantine's. With Constantine's? Us. No, Dave, you made me cho choose that. Um, okay. I know uh, the leader of these these poor people that are forced into this horrible situation. His name was Fridigern. That is an awesome name. It is a great name. So second child, Fridigern. I know you already have two children, Dave. So I have not... three children, Shiloh. Well, you already had the two, and now the third. We, so yeah, we we haven't we haven't seen each other in a bit. We need to get this COVID thing out of the way. Right, but um, yeah. So my second child, Fridigern. Hey, that's a good one. I like it. What's the first child? Trajan. Third child? Vercingetorix. Man, so you got the first century BCE with Vercingetorix. You got Trajan. That's second century. And then Fritigern, you got fourth century. I mean, that's amazing. I love it. Thanks. That's, um, that's cool. And in case you're wondering, uh, yes. the, the wife is totally on board. Loves them. And so we yeah. call for the first child. She always needs to have a short name. She says, what do we call him for short? Uh, for Trajan, Trey. Uh, yeah, for Fridigern, Fritz. But Fred. what do you do for Vercingetorix? Still working on that, but we'll work it out. We'll figure it out. <laughs> so, anyways, 
Fritigern <laughs> takes the lead, and he's going to factor in. We're going to talk about him again later, but what we want to remember, the takeaway from Adrianople is it's a huge loss for Rome. Their armies are crippled. And, Dave, what do some people even say about the importance in this battle? It highlights the importance of what aspect of the army? Um, well, cavalry. And so some people think, and this is, again, controversial, some people say that this was a huge turning point in history where you you switch from infantry to the cavalry, a, another step in the march towards feudalism in Europe. Um, it's also the emperor, Valens, died in battle, the, only, the second emperor in all of Roman history to die in battle. The first one was Decius, uh, which, if you want to know how to remember that, Decius deceased in battle but yeah valens died but yeah the takeaway was calvary was uh kind of became prominent after that you could you could say it's a turning point was that what you were going for yep you nailed it bro and uh also thinking about um the uh the impact of that loss for rome they spent years trying to recover from that also many people think that this is it's it's funny how uh we're looking at history and it's it's like controversial in that some people say this event and what was going on led to the downfall of Rome or was Rome all already you know falling apart and this was just a you know easy thing that happened because Rome was in such a weak condition you know was it the downfall that caused it or was it the this happened and then it caused the downfall so it's kind of tough to decide where that fits in but definitely we're going to talk later on in the next episode about this the different Germanic tribes really work their way in all over the Roman Empire. It, it's little by little they take over more and more of the Roman Empire. So, some we're talking about. But before we go any further, Dave, the year three seventy eight. The year three seventy eight yeah. isn't over. And I was wondering, man, what's going on in the year three seventy eight in the rest of the world? Well, in the rest of the world, we've had a chance to talk a little bit about what's going on in North and South America. A lot of people wonder what's happening. There's different cultures that are developing, and we don't have some real, uh, again, going back to burial mounds, some really hard and fast archaeological evidence comes up a few centuries later. But down in Mesoamerica, in the year 378, the same year that Rome and uh, the, the different Germanic tribes were entering, well, early on in the year 378, we're talking possibly around January, Spear Thrower Owl. Wow. He Ch was... Child number four. Wait, who? <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's a great idea. All right, so Spear Thrower Owl, he was the ruler of Teotihuacan. And we've talked about Teotihuacan. It's the pyramids just outside of Mexico City. They're very famous. The Avenue of the Dead, very large pyramids. Teotihuacan, that was a, it was a cultural um, people, or a, it was a city that had its culture. We're not talking about, this is long before the Aztecs. These people obviously influenced the Aztecs, but this is long before them. We're talking in 378. Spear Thrower Al, the ruler of Teotihuacan, he sends down his, one of his warlords, fire is born, and he conquers a Mayan area, a Mayan uh settlement called Tikal. And so if you know Tikal because there's an amazing um, 
World Heritage Site there. It's it's a it's a rainforest and it's a um, ancient civilizations you know center of living. Tikal is amazing. It's in Guatemala, modern day Guatemala, and uh, so basically this city up north in Mexico City, Teotihuacan, sends down an army and conquers part of Tikal in Guatemala. So that's quite a quite a distance that they cover there, and it influences the Mayan Empire. Now the Mayan Empire is on its, it's, it's rising little by little. It's going to continue to grow and become more and more powerful over the next century. But that's, uh, it's kind of interesting to think that at the same time that Rome is weakening and facing these challenges, there's a whole other world happening uh, in, in Mesoamerica. There's a whole other war that happens the same year. Interesting to think about what's going on in different parts of the world at the same time. And Dave, yes, with that in mind, yes, you going to talk about India? No, we're we're saving India. I want to bring up something, Dave, that's going oh, on no. in Japan. Japan? Japan. We haven't talked about Japan yet. We haven't talked about Japan. But in case you're listening, just so you know, just to make this clear, in Japan, in the fourth century. We enter a time called the Kofun period. Now, the Kofun... Was everybody Kofun fighting? Wow. You know, <laughs> poor, poor... That's a poor joke. <laughs> Ko, the Kofun period, Dave. Kofun is actually another mention of a burial mound. We've talked about that a couple of times in this episode already. I've got... I've got burial mounds in the brain, but it's a it's a type of burial mound <laughs> in Japan. And actually, sometimes they're called the keyhole burial sites. So they really? look like, they look oh, like a giant why? keyhole. They look like a giant keyhole from the air. They're massive sites. They take up more space than some of the pyramids of Giza. So, anyways, this Whoa. period. The reason we're bringing this up is it starts around 250 and it goes even into the 500s. So you might be saying, well, why are you bringing up? Now, in the fourth century, during the 300s, you know, why are you bringing up, uh, you know, this this period when it started a little bit before? But the reason we're bringing it up now is because there's a there's a major influence from people coming from China and Korea into uh, into Japan, and so this is where the Yamato clan starts to grow in power. So it's it basically, Yamato isn't the imperial dynasty that we know today or, or in, its, in its, at its height of its power, but it's starting to grow. And even recently, this dynasty is in existence, but even recently they've admitted to, or not admitted, but they've acknowledged the relation to uh, those that came from Korea. So thinking about what's going on in Japan, at the same time that... <laughs> Adrianople's happening at the same time that there's a war in Mesoamerica. In China, there's a migration of people from, or in Japan, there's a migration of people from China and Korea that is starting to affect what would become, you know, one of the longest ruling dynasties in history, the Yamato dynasty. Really? How long did they reign? Well, they, again, we're talking about this is the time period in the fourth century that they're starting to grow in power, and they're still in power down to our day. Oh, wow. So the Yamato. Really long time. That is considered a really long time. So, Dave. Yes. Oh, are we moving on to the footnote of the footnote of the footnote? Yeah, and, and people might be hearing us saying, wow, there's been a lot of stuff you guys have talked about, but 
we wanted to add a footnote. And we it's do. A, it's a footnote about a footnote because really this this happened long, you know, it happened before Adrianople, it happened before all that, but it wasn't that cool, it wasn't that interesting. Except yeah, to Dave yeah. it was. So Dave, take it away. You know, I think that a lot of what we talk about is interest, you know, might not be as interesting to other people as I think it is. But I want to talk about a guy that I like to call Bizarro Constantine. Now, if you don't know who Bizarro is, in the world of comic books, you have Superman and you have Bizarro. And Bizarro was like Superman, but he was his exact opposite. So in pop culture, people often call somebody a Bizarro something when they're exact opposite. Like, for example, on Seinfeld, there was even a Bizarro Jerry. There was a Bizarro George. So Bizarro Constantine was exactly the opposite of him in every way. And he's kind of a footnote to history because he didn't really accomplish anything of lasting value. Uh, nothing that he did really matters today, but he's kind of the one of the great what-ifs of, of history. It's kind of like James Dean. You know, James, you know how many movies James Dean made? Like, there's posters of him. Like, you go places, he's, like, up in, like, tourist shops. There's posters. Do you know how many movies he actually made? I think it was, like, three. Like, it wasn't that many, but he died young, and so he was kind of immortalized. And, you know, it's kind of like, hey, what might have been? What could he have done? That's kind of the way it is with this guy. And I think, like, a lot of people who are into Roman history, they have, like, their favorite Roman emperor. And it kind of all comes down to personality. Uh, like, for example, I was doing a... Um, uh, a, a, I was looking up online like the, the best and the worst Roman emperors, and depending on the website, they would kind of give the opposites. You know, like, for example, Diocletian was one of the best in one, and Hadrian was one of the worst, and on another website, it was the opposite. But it makes sense, because, like, if you're Jewish, you might like Diocletian but hate Hadrian because he persecuted the Jews. You know, if you're a Christian, you might like Hadrian but hate Diocletian because he persecuted the Christians. You know, Augustus is a safe bet because it's kind of like the Superman of emperors. If your favorite is Caligula or Commodus, you're just crazy, or maybe you're just kidding. But this guy that we're talking about, Julian, is kind of the favorite of some people, and it tells you a little bit about their personality. Uh, for example, well, why don't we talk about who Julian was? Constantine who was about two emperors before uh, Julian, he was known for making the Roman Empire Christian, or at least moving it in that direction. Julian tried to do the exact opposite. He tried to revert back to polytheism. And he had the same exact religious beliefs as every single Roman emperor up until Constantine, with the exception of maybe Aurelian or elagabalus who were monotheistic with sun worship but because he came two emperors after constantine he was labeled by the catholic church as julian the apostate because he tried to make everybody polytheistic again so who was julian and why do some people like him well let's look at edward gibbon as an example now we talked about him a little bit earlier he wrote the uh, decline and fall of the Roman Empire, which is massive. It's a huge work of books, and it was written around the time of the American Revolution, but it was written in Britain. Now, Julian, like, I don't like to use the word man crush lightly, Shiloh, 
But Given has like he he's got a major man crush on Julian. Like I mean, if if it was like if he was like a teenage girl in the early two thousands, like he, you know, like they might have a an in sync poster on the wall. Like he would have a Julian poster on the wall. Like he just goes on and on about him. Like for somebody who ruled for two years, he talks more about him, like chapter after chapter in the decline and fall of the Roman empire about Julian. Like I think even maybe more than Constantine, but just a few, uh, given quotes. Cause given, uh, says his opinion, like it's fact. He says that given was a young and valiant hero. Um, he says that, um, his enemies had to admit that he deserved the empire of the world. Uh, he even said that if you took any other Roman empire and threw him in the street, he would have been homeless, you know, in a week without his purple cloak. But he said that Julian would have risen to the top no matter where he started off in life. But you can see, like, where the personality test comes comes in there because, like, Julian was a bookworm. Edward Gibbon was a bookworm. Julian didn't like the Catholic Church. Edward Gibbon didn't like the Catholic Church. It seems like they kind of had a lot in common. So let's give a rundown of who this guy was, Bizarro Constantine. And sorry, I'm being a little bit long-winded, but basically uh, he was related to Constantine. He was like his great nephew. And uh, when he was a kid... Uh, Constantine's son, Constantius, had all of uh, young Julian's family killed, with the exception of him and his big brother. Some people think that that's why he looked to uh, polytheism, because somebody who claimed to be Christian killed his family. I like to think of that Jack Handy quote. Uh, do you remember Jack Handy, Shiloh? Love Jack thoughts? Handy. Yeah, I would love yeah. Jack Handy. He said, uh, uh, I've always had a strange fear of clowns. I think it goes back to the time I went to the circus and a clown killed my dad. Wow, that's dark. Yeah, well, I mean, the deep thoughts usually were. Well, he also said it takes a big man to cry, but it takes a bigger man to laugh at that man. Oh, but okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting, yeah, but so anyways, that's that may have been why he turned back to polytheism. But through, you know what, I'm kind of going to go way over time on this. I'm going to condense it down through a weird, strange series of events. He ends up becoming the emperor. Uh, he's like 25 years old, he's a bookworm, and he rocks it. Uh, he joins the military with no experience, does awesome. Uh, he gets into the civilian government, he fixes the taxes, he does great. Uh, everybody really, really likes him. Long story short, he goes into battle, he's kind of in a rush, he doesn't put on his breastplate, gets hit by a stray spear that would have easily glanced off the breastplate, and he dies. So I yada yada through a lot of that. It's really fascinating, but I could probably talk for like 20, 30 minutes. But what's the takeaway here? Uh, the takeaway is it was kind of one of the great what-ifs of history. For example, if Constantine had died before the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, uh, which we talked about in the last episode, like how would have history, how would history have been different? Like the Roman Empire maybe would not have become Christian or, you know, Catholic. And just to, to make a little distinction here, um, something that Gibbon brings out um, is that once you get to the 4th century, he doesn't call it Christianity anymore. Uh, he calls it Catholicism. Uh, he also brings out that uh, Christianity in its unadulterated 
state only existed in the first century. So at this point, he just refers to it as Catholicism because that's kind of what it's morphed into. And also there was a lot of different sects of Christianity at this point. Constantine made all of them illegal except for one, which was basically Catholicism. Julian, when he came around and he tried to make everybody polytheistic again, the way he did it, the way he kind of discouraged Christianity was by making every sect of Christianity legal. Not illegal, he made them all legal. So he didn't throw anybody to the lions. He didn't execute anybody. Um, he actually was quoted as saying that no uh, lion uh, or no wild beast was as vicious as sectarian Christians were to each other. And at this point, there had been civil wars. There had been civil wars fought over whether or not God was part of the Trinity at this point in Roman history. So you could see why he thought, well, hey, if I just make everybody legal, they'll just fight each other and I can make everybody polytheistic and I'll be happy. So I guess the takeaway from all of this is if he hadn't been hit by that stray spear, how would history have been different? Would he have been known more like Constantine the Great instead of Julian the Apostate? Some people think that if he hadn't died, maybe when you were walking down the street, uh, you would see like maybe a Baptist church, a Catholic church, and then you'd see like the temple to Jupiter or the temple to Athena. Maybe the Greek religions in some way, shape, or form would be kind of a bigger deal today. So that's Julian. He's a footnote to a footnote. He's somebody that you don't really need to know about, but he's kind of interesting because he is as I like to call him, Bizarro Constantine. Well, Dave, wow. Thanks for the run on that. Super interesting to hear about uh, what could have been in history. But we're not here to talk about what could have been in history, Dave. We're here to talk about what did happen and what is coming up in our next episode. We're and, not done with the 4th century. And really bad puns. Right. That's, that's what we live for. So, what's coming up for the next episode of the 4th Century? We've got to finish up a few things, and first off, we need to know what's going on in India. We also what's going on in India, Shiloh? Well, we also want to talk about what happens when a bishop challenges an emperor, and what happens, when, what happens to Britain when Rome packs up and leaves. Those are the next, that's what we're going to talk about in the next episode, Dave. This has been a nice, long awesome episode talking about some really interesting things in the fourth century dave thank you and uh look forward to next time this episode is brought to you by hunnic beef jerky hunnic beef jerky do you ever bite into a nice bite of beef jerky and think to yourself wow this is really missing the stank of horse sweat well <laughs> just buy some hunnic beef jerky Man, I, I can't tell you how many times I have bought some Hunnic beef jerky and I have just been so satisfied, you know. It just makes me so happy to have some Hunnic beef jerky. Just a few little show notes, too. Uh, if you're ever here in an episode and you're like, man, like, I uh, I really want to, you know, communicate with these guys. If you just message me on Instagram at History by the Century or just my email, historybythecentury at gmail.com. Uh, you know, we're always happy to uh, hear some 
communication. Feedback. Feedback? That, that was one of those that, that was one of those senses where I started and I didn't really know where it was going and it just kind of well kinda trailed welcome off there. to how every sense of mine comes out. So real <laughs> quick too, uh, as Dave mentioned, one thing that we really want to say is thanks for anyone that's listening, especially Dave. Uh, he knows the technology side of things. He lets me know regularly when someone downloads an episode from a country that we, um, you know, it's not normal for us to, uh, you know, we think, oh, okay, maybe our friends might be listening. But then all of a sudden I say, I don't have any friends in Portugal, Dave. So, uh, you know, if, um, if you're listening, Dave let me know that we had a download in Portugal and I thought, wow, we should give that person a shout out and say, if you are still listening and you're in Portugal, you are probably the first person. You're a trendsetter, uh, as well as, uh, uh, England. You mentioned England, right, Dave? And, yeah, we uh, had some listeners in Canada and England and, you know, some other places like Portugal and it was kind of did, crazy. Didn't, didn't you mention that. Germany? Didn't you mention yeah, Germany? Germany too. Wow, so yeah. exciting. So if you're listening there, it's not a lot of people, so it's easy to say if you are listening right now and you are in those countries, you are the people that we are saying thank you to. Yeah, and just uh, whatever app you're using, whether it's like Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Podbean, if you just hit the subscribe button when a new episode comes out, it'll pop up in your feed. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Well, another episode down, Dave. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Shiloh. This has been... History by the Century!